Welcome to Doing Theology, Thinking Mission, where we talk about the biblical text in cultural context. Welcome back to Doing Theology, Thinking Mission. Uh, This is Jackson, and I'm joined by my co-host. Hey, this is Carrie. And we have a really special privilege today. We are talking with Audrey Frank, and we're catching her just before she goes uh, out of the country for some travel. And so it's a real privilege to get to talk to her. We actually met Audrey a few years back at the Honor Shame Conference in Wheaton and uh, immediately just found us uh, so much in common and uh, got to actually connect uh, with uh, her and at her home. And so we wanted to uh, uh, bring her here for a conversation about uh, honor, shame uh, in the Muslim world. So, Audrey, uh, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be with you again. Absolutely. Would you uh, introduce yourself and talk a little bit about uh, the things you've done so people kind of have a little bit of understanding of your background? Sure. Well, my husband and I have worked with Muslims since 1998. It wasn't my original intention per se, but we received some wise counsel when we were university students that it would be a good idea to gain professional degrees so that we could really go anywhere in the world, especially to the least reached peoples. And with that in mind, that's what we did. And those least reached peoples lined up very quickly with Muslim majority nations. Hmm. Yeah. So we started with a more of a folk Islamic tribe. They, they had a combination of animism and Islam Sometimes the witch doctor would come through the village and he would have bits of the Quran and bits of bark and bits of leather and bits of the Bible all in one little briefcase. And Mm. he was selling his wares and uh, he would ask what you needed and make that little charm for the children in the village who were sick or other things. And um, I saw a lot of I saw a lot of what I would think of even as some. some subjugation of some of the tribal people um, on the continent of Africa who really didn't understand what Islam was, but they really, really liked the clothing. So the young men especially were offered a a hat and a long robe, and there would, would be promised a well to be put in the village. And eventually we began seeing a a small mosque beside every school out in the remotest parts of sub-Saharan Africa. And um, that was my introduction, really. So it was a, a mixed up, um, it was a mixed up patched together viewpoint. And I didn't understand it more fully until I moved into a Muslim majority nation um, later. And the persecuted church began meeting in our home for many years. And, and that was very, very different being in a, in, um, um, a country where Sharia law was the law of the land and 99.9% of the people were followers of Muhammad. Mm. Wow. So you have, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, this is, you you know, you've written a book called Covered Glory, the face of honor and shame in the Muslim world. And, you know, certainly your experience working among Muslim, uh, Muslim peoples spurred that on. Uh, what made you think, hey, you know, this is more than just kind of a, 
interesting cultural thing. Like I really need to put a lot of focus and energy into understanding this because this is a big deal. I think it's because um, maybe the first thing that really was confusing to me was that my Muslim friends would tell me that they had not sinned. And my approach to sharing the gospel coming from the West was the four spiritual laws. Now you have to understand, Mm -hmm. but you have to understand we did go back to college. We did go back to seminary and we did obtain intercultural and theology degrees. And we did have training in how to reach Muslims, but I still was hanging on to my worldview Um, No one had ever really explained to me how to get around the big problem of sin or the belief that we are not sinners. And so my my friends would actually start comforting me. This was very confusing to me when I would begin down the road of um, we are all sinners. um, They would suddenly uh, become very compassionate, very concerned for me that I thought I was a sinner (laughs) because, you see, I worked Mm. with um, I worked with the poorest of the poor I worked with. I worked with the shamed. I was. Uh, I worked on um, teams that we repaired uh, cleft lip and palate, and the people in my community saw me as a very honorable person. <laughs> they didn't see me as a sinner. They saw me as someone who could was very close to being a Muslim, as I was told many times. <laughs> so I'd say that was the first big boulder that I <laughs> ran up against, and I thought I am doing something wrong. This is not. This is not computing. It's not translating. Wow. Yeah. The, you know, as you began to, it sounds like kind of rework your understanding of a Muslim worldview, you kind of, you came right up upon this idea of honor and shame. And as you began to understand that from a, a Muslim perspective, can you just give us a an idea of like a working definition that you that you saw play out for both honor and shame in those communities. Well, what I began to what was very clear very early was that people maintained a position. I might not have called it honor at that time, but I would have said maybe being part of the group, a position of belonging. Mm-hmm. They're insiders. If they follow certain rules, and in Islam, these are religious rules. There's no separating um, the rule of life, the regular from um, religion. And even the pillars of Islam and, and, and even the way one you know, washes their hands, does ablutions before prayer, different things. Everything is very regimented. And so I, I began to, to understand that people were either insiders or they were outsiders. And a majority of the ones who were outsiders, who had broken their rules, either voluntarily or involuntarily, were women. And then I began mm. to identify with them. And the, the night that this really came home to me in a, in a, at the time, it was almost a disturbing way. It really shook my, it shook my theology. It shook my uh, understanding of myself and everything was um, very late one night. I had a knock on the door and a young woman was there. And so first of all, it was after dark. There was a knock on the door. It was a woman. Those were enough clues for me to know either there was an emergency or something was very wrong because women didn't go out at night. It was it was mm-hmm. shameful for them. 
And so I opened the door and this woman comes in and she has her, her two-year-old in her arms and the little girl had fallen into the fire. And in this village where we lived at that time, they lived in mud houses and they cooked on the earthen floor in a little, a little fire right there in the middle of the house. And the little girl just had stumbled back and sat square in the flames. And I was the closest thing to a medic within two hours. And I did have the supplies for, for a lot of um, first responder and first aid care. And so I started tending the little girl's wounds. And as I was doing it, I, I said to the mother, I said, I'm doing this in the name of Jesus. He is the way, mm. the truth, and the life. And when I said Jesus, she gasped and she said, is that his name? And I tell the story so many times that honestly, if I hadn't lived through the story and sat there and, and watched it happen, I'm not sure I could believe it because her story came tumbling out. She told me that when she was around 12, I mean, she didn't really know how old she was even that day, but um, some context clues, I would guess she was 12 or 13. She said that one day she's working in the garden and her mother came and said, prepare yourself to be, you will be married today. And her father was indebted mm. to a very powerful witch doctor. And in that region, there are two kinds of witch doctors. There are the kind who heal you when you're sick. You go to them for a charm that will heal a cold, for example. And then there are the other kind of witch doctors and these are the ones who you go to when you want to place a curse on someone, when you want to kill someone or make them very sick. And this happened um, frequently. They were very powerful. And her father um, was very angry with his neighbor because the neighbor had infringed on his garden and was planting beans and corn. And his crops not only were on were over the line on her father's land, but they also were thriving more than her father's. And so her father had gone to this powerful witch doctor and and asked for a curse. Well, sometime shortly after, the oldest son of the neighbor fell down dead. And so now her father was indebted and she was the price. So mm. um, he took her there and she became his wife. He was much, much older than her. And she said, as she's telling me the story, she said, one night after I was married, I was crying and I cried myself to sleep. And this man came to me and he was dressed in the sun. She said he was so bright. He was like the sun. But when I looked at him, it didn't hurt my eyes. And he reached out his hand to me and he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And one day someone will come and tell you my name. Wow. Wow. I was stunned. I sat there. Mm. That is the first hint that I had, that there was a secret fellowship of women who had seen the pit they had been cast outside by no choice of their own because you see i would have never thought in my lifetime i would share this story publicly then but i also when i was around 12 or 13 i was in a very desperate place in my life i was growing up in extreme trauma and abuse and shame mm -hmm. and i saw no way out and i wanted to die and i was I look back at that 12-year-old girl, and I think she had a lot of faith because I believed that if God wouldn't remove me from the, the trauma, then at least he would 
he would take me on to heaven. He had the power to do that. So I was sitting on my bed and I was just really just waiting for him to take me out of here. And I mm. heard my door open and Jesus came to me and he reached out his hand and he said, I'm the way, the truth and the life. Follow me. And I was already a follower of Jesus, but he was asking me to follow him out of that pit. And I did. I believed him. And I told no one about that, but it had been mm. profound. It had been a life jacket, a life preserver. It had saved me in so many ways and given me the courage to grow up. And here is this woman on the other side of the world who is illiterate, has never read the Bible. In fact, they didn't have the Bible in her language at that time. They were actually working on it while we were there. And Jesus had come to her in an exquisitely similar way. This is when I began to realize that this wasn't just about their worldview and their story, that this was something about my story too, and it was mm. woven together. Mm. So mm. I began searching for that. I, be, I began hungering more for to know that bigger God. God grew so much bigger. He exploded out of some box I put it in in that moment. Mm. And I couldn't measure him. Yeah, it's amazing how many times I found people who, overseas workers who, they just saw things like honor and shame as just kind of just some other other characteristic on a big list of cultural stuff. And then all of a sudden they realized that their own story had, you know, these facets in it. And then, then it becomes real. And for me, as I've shared before, is like, you know, PhD was therapy because you know, I wanted to understand how honor and shame worked in my own life so I could help other people. So you really are echoing a story that uh, I find that it's true people who have really seen the power uh, of God to use honor and shame for his for his sake. I think so yeah, often. Audrey, thank you. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I think so often we 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 go into other cultures and people groups ready, raring to go with our strategies and our ideas of how things mm -hmm. work. I know when I moved into that first region with the first Muslim people group I lived with, I, I thought I was prepared and um, I thought I was bringing God to them. How, how very prideful and arrogant. I didn't see that in myself, but I, I see it now. And she humbled me and and just silence that thought forever <laughs> when she when she revealed to me that Jesus had not waited on anyone he had come himself and in the many many years since that night I spoke to her I have seen evidence of him doing that chasing people all over mm -hmm. the world mm -hmm. in the same way and I know even in that village another thing that would happen often one thing I was not prepared for was um, that the shame that I would bear because I didn't have children at that time. And so they would not call me woman. They called me little girl. And mm. at night, or actually I had, um, it was, it was beginning to wear on me. You know, they were really ridiculing me and shaming me constantly. Mm. Um, and I had a miscarriage while I lived there. And after the miscarriage, Women started coming to me at night and they would sit down with me and pat my leg and say, I understand. I'm a little girl too. <laughs> wow. Wow. Mm, yeah. You know, we, 
started off, we asked you to talk about defining honor and shame, but I love what you did and say you described it. You talk about being uh, accepted as a, uh, being an insider and uh, as honor, and then you, but then you talk about being like rejected, being an outsider, being a girl as opposed to a woman. Mm-hmm. I mean, those are the kind of things that you feel at a at a bone level, not just at a head yeah. level. Well, and you know, Audrey, first, just thank you for being open and vulnerable and sharing your story here. But also, I mean, it's in your book, Cover Glory. You weave, you know, your story in, and it. I think, as you said a second ago, the thing that is helpful to understand is that this is not like, oh, this is this Muslim strategy, but this is who we are as humanity. And I think that's easy to forget when we set it up as an us, them. Mm-hmm. Um, but you mentioned a second ago, you know, there, this woman who, who came to you, there's shame because we have done something right. Like I, mm-hmm. I broke the law and therefore I am being shamed. And I think maybe we focus a little bit more on that here in the West. Um, this, I am guilty of, you know, some infraction, therefore I am feeling shame. But there's this also idea that you touch on, um, is this idea of positional shame. And so, you know, with, with maybe not having children with the, this woman being 13 and being married off, there's this, this shame that they, that they or we incur not because we did actively did something wrong, Mm -hmm. but because we are in a vulnerable, vulnerable position. Can you unpack that a little bit? Cause I think that's maybe the idea of positional shame is a little bit more difficult for us to grasp maybe as born and bred Americans, you know, Mm -hmm. very much. I'd like to start with um, just a conclusion that I've drawn is that guilt is a behavioral issue. I did something, therefore I, you know, I, mm-hmm. I did something bad. I did something wrong. Um, yeah. And there's recourse for that. You can seek forgiveness. You can do community service. You can serve your time. You can um, do these things. You can say sorry. But shame is an identity issue. So mm-hmm. yeah. guilt is a behavioral issue. Shame is an identity issue. And saying that, when we look at shame as a position in society, um, we're not so far from that here in the West now. I feel there's a tilt happening at the moment. I feel that there are many people and groups of people who are crying out and saying, I matter. See me. I have value. And there is a lot of shaming going on. Um, but with our individualist society where belonging to the group is not as important as your individual rights, then it can it can really um, be vicious. It can be a vicious kind of kind of uh, response. So you were talking about how, you know, we can rectify, we can do things to kind of take care of guilt. Uh, but then this shame is about the shame that you're talking about is about identity. Well, the question is, well, how do you fix identity? I mean, you are who you are, you know, and, 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 and for a lot of people, you know, you go to your high school reunion, you're still that 15 year old person who, you know, <laughs> yeah, did something stupid that you still not live down, you know, are always that person. So culturally, like in, in, in the Muslim world, what are some of the 
maybe cultural solutions that are that are responses to shame that people have? Well, I have observed what I call stages of shame management. <laughs> That's what I call them. Mm. Um, yeah. To answer your question. And I have seen these consistently. I have spoken a lot with um, fellow fellow um, believers who are from a Muslim background, but also friends who are Muslims. And, and we generally do agree that these are clearly seen. And the first one, the first way to manage shame is avoidance altogether. For a Muslim, for, the, yeah. for one from an honor-shame worldview, you are completely preoccupied at all times with avoiding shame. Yeah. And one great example, one of my mentors shared with me, he said that uh, there was an American businessman who was working in the Middle East, and he he had a good Muslim friend who had come into some inheritance money. And the friend was seeking the American's wisdom and counsel to make a business plan. He wanted to invest this inheritance money wisely. And so they made a very elaborate plan for him to open a butcher shop that sold special cuts of meat to expatriates. And any of us who have lived who are who have lived as an expatriate probably could appreciate the idea of that and think it would pretty would be pretty lucrative business. And mm-hmm. so the American thought they had a great plan. They met for coffee and the American was going on vacation for a couple of weeks. They agreed that when I get back, we will go and look at an office space or rental space or something like that. So he went away, came back two weeks later. He met with his Muslim friend and his friend said, I bought an olive grove. American is like, oh, okay. (laughs) But he knew a little about the honor shame worldview. So he knew to just wait and listen and and it, it would become clear. And his friend began to explain to him, I was thinking, if the butcher shop fails, only I fail. But if there's a drought or blight, everyone's crops will fail. So I bought an mm. olive grove. And mm. I like to point out that even though, you know, my the particular burden I have on my heart that I speak so often about is is the burden bearer, the Muslim woman who carries such an honor shame burden. I also want to just emphasize that Muslim men carry a tremendous burden as well. They're always thinking, how do I avoid shame? Even then that would make mm. they would make a decision, a business decision like that. So that's avoidance. The second yeah stage or the second stage of shame management is covering if you weren't able to avoid shame then you cover it and this this might be why your muslim friend said they'd meet you but um you thought you had a plan for tea time and they didn't show up and told you their sister was sick but you saw their sister and then she's not sick well it's better to cover it mm-hmm. than to um, than to offend or shame you by um, telling you the truth i didn't want to come or i couldn't <laughs> for some reason yeah um then there's denial which denial is where westerners get pretty sometimes a relationship can can fracture here because this looks like lying it looks very much like lying about very serious things sometimes um, and sometimes denying even takes the form of denying the existence of a person. I know for me, um, one example in my life was a very good friend of mine. Her husband had rejected her and sent her back home to serve her handicapped brother and her elderly father. 
And we were having lunch one day at her sister's and she had cooked the meal and she brought it in. And I was looking forward to talking with her and visiting with her as well. And her niece looked at me and said, she's not here. And she had just brought the plate and set it down in front of us. I said, but she is here. She says, we don't speak of her. Don't say her name. So she was denying wow. because mm. of no fault of her own. This precious friend had brought shame on the family, on the group, because her husband had rejected her. So it brought attention to the whole group, back to the definition of honor and shame being positional. Um, everything mm-hmm. you do reflects on your family, your community, your tribe your nation. Um, And then the last and most severe and terrible uh, management strategy is purging. And that's Mm -hmm. when death is the result, an honor killing, a purging of the shame. And this is um, deeply distressing to see. I mean, when I see these stages of shame management, so to speak, I see all of them um, addressed by the Messiah, Jesus. Mm. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, even the the spilling of blood to cover, to cleanse, to purify, to restore Mm. honor. So at the heart of the Muslim struggle is a struggle for redemption. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You get you said so much. We go to all these different directions. Carrie, what were you going to say? Well, I I was just going to ask, as you look at these stages of shame management, um, did you find that either the men or the women had an easier time going through them? I guess as an outsider, as I'm learning and processing these things, it seems like the men with more positional honor would have an easier time maybe being able to use these shame management things to his benefit. Does that make sense? It does make sense. I think to help understand it better, maybe we should look at the different roles that men and women play in the honor-shame paradigm. Mm -hmm. And please understand, this is a gross generalization, but it is generally observable and true. Um, Mm -hmm. But in general, women are the... they, They train the children. They're the teachers of honor. They train the children until they're until they come of age, maybe around age 10, 11, 12, they train them what is honorable and what is not and how to avoid it. So they're very responsible for teaching that first stage of avoidance. Um, One example of this is why we see mothers taking their daughters for female genital mutilation and we see women performing that Why would women do that to women, to young women, to girls? Well, they are teaching them. They are showing them how to, how to avoid shame. And and so women are very much the teachers of that, but men are the honor guards. Um, By the time they're, they're young, young men, older boys, 12-ish, they, they begin learning that it is their responsibility to protect the honor of the females in their household. And this is why you hear about brothers killing their sisters because they shame the family by talking to a boy or riding on the mm-hmm. bus with him yeah. and holding hands. Um, why would a young boy do that to his sister? So I hope this gives 
our listeners a glimpse into the tremendous honor burden that not only women carry, but men as well. Hey guys, I am the theologian in residence at a fantastic organization called Mission One, who sponsors this podcast. We partner with the global church in making communities more like the kingdom of God. Mission One partners with locally led ministries and denominations on projects, training, and relief efforts in their own communities. From clean water and education, to church planning and discipleship, to theological training and contextualization, Mission One desires to see every community transformed for the glory of God and the honor of all peoples. If you wanna learn more about our work at Mission One, visit us at missionone.org. Yeah, and to unpack a little bit, you talked about how older women are trying to teach the younger women how to avoid shame through uh, genital mutilation. And the, the implicit logic, I think, is that it somehow deters their uh, their desire to, to possibly sexually compromise. Uh, is, that, is that the idea? Is that the logic? Yes, that is. That is the logic, and also just to guarantee, okay. it is. It makes it a deterrent for them okay. to basically break those rules and bring shame on the family by doing so. Well, it seems so. It seems like uh, it's a a negative, as a, a, a zero sum or negative game for women, or a, a men can get honor, but when women can only get shame, almost it, it almost feels like it's a it's hard for women to get any honor. It's just basically don't mess up. Well, a Muslim woman may not tell you that, though. She might very, very much believe that she has been given. Many, many of the Muslim women I know are very, very proud of their ability to follow the rules. Mm. And yeah. this this creates some some tremendous, tremendously strong belief that I've not sinned. <laughs> so it, it yeah. makes it difficult to... Um, Sometimes it makes it difficult to have the sin conversation, but perhaps that's not the conversation we need to have anyway, because they all, uh, an, an open door, perhaps a first step, a beginning point is to talk with them in the context of honor and shame rather in the, the sin context, because they do believe in sin. They do have a sin paradigm, but it is not a felt need they have that they need God to help them with. So many believe that, or, or the belief, within Islam is that we we do sin, but we hurt ourselves when we do so. It doesn't hurt God. Maybe he'll forgive us. Maybe he won't. Mm. It's arbitrary. It's of no cost to him. That's yeah. so opposite to our gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, yeah. that it cost him everything. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting as I get a, a more broad understanding of how... Um, they might be approaching this idea of sin and honor and purity and impurity is that there's no, there's no sense of sin being this private act, you know, and that their, um, their honor and shame is, is inextricably linked to their community. Yes. And so do you feel like, because they, I mean, they have internalized that idea when, when they hear stories about Jesus and his interactions with, with women in scripture or families with, you know, there's healings in scripture is, is there a sense of, they really do have a foundation that this is a 
a relationship that I'm looking to be restored to rather than this idea of like, I need my own personal sin to be just taken care of and eradicated. Is that, does that make sense? I feel like I didn't is phrase it, it, that Are you asking well. like, what is the felt need, the prominent felt need? Yeah, because I think in one sense, someone with a worldview where they very much understand that their honor and shame is linked to other people, Mm -hmm. that they can really have an advantage in understanding that their honor and shame is also linked to this creator, God. Because as Westerners, we can think, oh, well, my sin is my problem. Mm-hmm. And then we don't necessarily look for a God to reconcile with because I can kind of, I can kind of fix my own mess and it doesn't really impact anyone else. Well, to answer your question, maybe <laughs> I, um, I have found as I've talked to many friends who are Muslim background believers that the moment that they began to understand the invitation to relationship with God was when they encountered the Word of God. And I have found that the most effective way, I hate to even use that word because, again, I started as a strategist and I became a worshiper as I studied Mm. the theology of honor. But the most effective way I see is sharing Bible stories with them because they see things I don't even see with my Western eyes. The, the, The depth of God's character of patronage and his character of honor and his his power to purify is it's so com- so much more complex than I've even understood and they show me that in their responses to stories in the word um it's amazing to me to see there's one story that so many have responded to well is just the story of Mary story to share with Muslim men and women together is the story of Mary and then the story of Joseph. How so? How does that, how does that uh, open people up? Because for Mary, she was, she was engaged. She was a teenage girl. She was a virgin um, and she was pregnant and God himself came to her. These are, this is feedback I've received from Muslim women who have heard the story the first time. Wow. God chose her. He spoke to her Mm. and they have been shocked by how God came himself to Joseph, who, if you read it through the eyes of honor and shame, you realize that he was doing what a man in that context would do, but he was doing it in a very honorable way. He didn't want to shame her. Mm -hmm. So he would plan to quietly divorce her. Well, this is astonishing to many Muslims because God himself came and said, Joseph, not only stay with her, but you bear the shame. Mm-hmm. In that sense, you leave, instead of covering, just covering her with your honor by remaining with her, not abandoning her, not quietly divorcing her, I want you to also be willing to step to the outside with her because she, her pregnancy will be known. People will not just talk about her, they will talk about you. Mm-hmm. And this right. was, as one of my Muslim friends said to me, And she was carrying Jesus, who you Christians say died the shameful death on the cross. And the thought that my Muslim friend made that connection for me, that God came to Joseph, the earthly father, and said, bear the shame 
of the coming of this one who will bear your shame. <laughs> this is astonishing to me. Wow, like father, like son. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, I want us to get to Jesus uh, real specifically in a second. Um, but before we do, I would have wanted you to address some of these counterfeit solutions. You talk about count, counterfeit honor um, in the book because if, if we want to talk about the true gospel, sometimes we have to identify counterfeit gospels. And so mm-hmm. before we talk about true honor from the Lord, from Christ, talk about this counterfeit honor and the need to identify it. I think the, the first way to understand it is to familiarize yourself with real honor. Um, and I, I believe that biblical honor has three main characteristics. One is that we are known by name by God himself. We are given value by God himself and through Jesus Christ. This value is extended. This honor is extended to every person, regardless of their merit. Counterfeit honor then becomes much more evident when we hold it up to that standard. Counterfeit honor separates. It silences. It hides people. It elevates people over God. Their self-righteousness. The Bible refers to it as pride and idolatry, legalism. Um, so when we when we see those those clues of self righteousness and pride, uh, of man centered honor, then we should stop and ask ourselves: Is this genuine or counterfeit? Mm, that's a great word. Yeah, I uh, one of the things I like that uh, you point out. Uh, I'll just read this quote here because you say the universal human desire to have a clean heart restored and holy can help us understand the compulsion that drives entire cultures of the world uh of the world through the lens uh or see the world through the lens of honor and shame honor goes by many ordinary names clean accepted love and good uh and around the world humankind made the image of god longs to be called by those honorable names um there is in other words, there is hope here, even though I know a lot of people may hear some of these stories and, and hear about the way people use shame and counterfeit honor and, and be discouraged. But you're underneath all this, you're, there's this universal need that scripture speaks on uh, that you're really pointing at. Um, could you could we maybe turn the conversation a little bit more focused on Jesus here? Uh, because. You do have a lot of discussion in your book about how Jesus addresses some of these things. And you mentioned a woman named uh, Imani, who, funny enough, you said the more she learned about Jesus, the more Muslim she became. (laughs) And that was helpful for you to understand how Jesus speaks to honor and shame in the Muslim world. Can you elaborate on that? Yes, she was. She was so excited to learn about Jesus so much so that she invited me shortly after I had my second child to come and speak to her university class about Jesus. <laughs> and afterwards wow. I had this baby, I had this newborn strapped to the front of me the whole time. And afterwards a group of college students followed me all the way home, just asking question after question and saying things like, no one ever told us this before. And so it was, mm. it was a very exciting time. So you can imagine how bewildered I was when Ramadan came and my friend who had always dressed in Western fashion suddenly um, was wearing no makeup, full hijab, and extremely religious acting. Um, she had never fasted during Ramadan before, 
And she certainly did not pray five times a day. She began doing that. And I was devastated. I felt like a failure. Um, and in some ways, I guess I was, uh, I, I was looking at things through my myself. I was so thinking mm -hmm. that I was the one who had some power to change a heart. But what I realized later was that she was excited about what she was seeing in my life. She was excited about the the potential uh, and the relationship that came from um, faith in Jesus. And so she went to the only place she knew. She went to her own set of rules to try to get what she saw and what she was longing for. Mm -hmm. And so then I began to understand, oh, well, that makes a lot of sense. When you yeah. see someone walking down the street who is a lot thinner and more fit than the last time you saw them, and, and you ask them, what have you been doing? Well, I've been doing CrossFit. I've been doing this and that. <laughs> and you think, well, CrossFit's not for me, but I sure can do Weight Watchers, and I like to walk. And so you go and you do everything you can do, and you're not going to look like that person. Um, that's yeah. maybe a poor analogy, but it made a lot of sense to me then. She was yeah. going to the rules she had, and she was trying. Yeah. So I began praying, let it be empty, Lord. <laughs> let it be empty. Mm, yeah. yeah. And I think it echoes. I know that I, I can feel like that at times. Like, Lord, am I, am I doing the right things? Like, in one sense, if there was like a checklist, it would feel easier in one sense. That, mm -hmm. okay, yeah, I can do that. I can do that. I can do that. And there's a sense of validation. Like, yes, I'm doing the right thing. Now, I mean, that obviously is, you know, we are short circuiting all the things about grace and identity and new creation, but you can see where that would be very tempting, I think. Yes. And very comforting. It's, very comforting. Yeah. Particularly yeah. think about her, her context. I mean, she, she was a, a daughter. She was, um, the breadwinner she was she had a she was a college graduate she was very intelligent she got yeah. a job and was bringing money home her mother before her before this this friend um got her job her mother was just selling bread on the streets and so mm. she had a lot yeah. to lose positionally in her community right. of honor by leaving it to follow jesus so she was trying with to maintain her community maintain her position um but but find that joy Find that joy yeah. she saw yeah. in the followers of Jesus. Yeah. So a lot of people might hear her story and just go just right off to, oh, she's just trying to earn her salvation. But you put you frame it a little bit differently. You talk about she's trying to achieve honor. And by contrast, you start you introduce the idea of ascribed honor. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And could, <laughs> could you kind of elaborate on that? Because that may make people kind of turn their heads and and and. And this is where Jesus comes in for you in, in your explanation. Yes. So achieved honor is the honor that you you gain by doing something, obviously. But ascribed honor, you do nothing to deserve. And we may think commonly in, in the West of, of a king or a queen who was born to the throne. They were born to parents who were royalty. So they have received ascribed honor and they didn't choose to be king or queen. And the beauty of Jesus Christ is he demonstrates both. <laughs> he mm. is God. He was there from the beginning. He was there in Genesis 131 when God called us good. He had created humans and he said it was good. Jesus was yeah. present 
He has ascribed honor that is infinite and immeasurable. However, he humbled himself that he might also achieve it on the cross. I find this mind-boggling and glorious. And when I share this perspective with Muslim friends, it certainly opens a completely different direction of conversation. Mm. And ways of, I think, I, I was reading through your book and at the same time reading through like Matthew 7, 8, 9, when it's just, it's like healing after miracle, after healing, after healing, <laughs> these back-to-back things in that section of Matthew. And so I was reading that in conjunction with your book. And what it caused me to do as I was reading these gospel narratives is to go, how is Jesus restoring their honor, not just maybe with the Lord, but in the community? How is he restoring? What did he do with the hemorrhaging woman (laughs) that restored her name and her honor among the crowd that was gathered around her at that time? And, And so I think as we think of these ideas of achieved honor and ascribed honor and positional honor and shame and we have to understand that that those were the waters that these biblical narratives are swimming in. And so we have to slow down and ask those questions, I think, that will really give us um, such a deeper understanding of what what was going on apart from like, oh, that's so cool that Jesus healed that guy. And then mm-hmm. we move on. Mm-hmm. Um, it just I think it helps slow us down. And I know as you unpacked many of those stories in, in your book, it was really helpful to me. Yeah. Thank you. I love the story of the woman with the issue of blood because Jesus restores her in every way. And as a Westerner, I had a very, I had a a very narrow view of that story. I loved that story before I ever understood honor and shame. It was already a beautiful story. Mm. But when I began living in a context like the one she lived in, where women who have any discharge of any kind from their bodies even a runny nose are not allowed to fast during Ramadan. They're considered unclean or different things. Women who they must make up the days they have their monthly cycle during Ramadan. They cannot fast those days. So that Ramadan ends, but they must make that time up um, that they missed. Mm. I, 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 it's just remarkable to me. He, he cleansed her. Not only did he remove her sickness, but I'm fascinated by the fact that he called her daughter. That is the name yes. he used. Because now I yes. don't know, and I would, I am not superimposing some kind of extra biblical information here, but I wonder to myself, knowing my Jesus and the way he has dealt so tenderly with the wounded places in my life, I wonder if she hadn't lost her position as daughter or, or couldn't go around her family mm. because of yeah. because of her positional shame. And maybe yeah. that was a place of heartbreak for her. But I do yeah. know that that is the name Jesus chose to use to restore mm-hmm. her. And yeah. I can only imagine the power. <laughs> I So I underlined that in bright orange. And I actually thought, I need to tell Audrey, that should be a title that she uses for her next book. Cause it says, it's this take heart comma daughter. Yeah. And I thought, Oh my gosh, the amount of things wrapped up in that one small phrase. Yes. And I have this picture of this woman looking up to him and him going, take heart daughter. And just, <laughs> I, I just kind of lost it, you know, it's five in the morning and I'm reading take heart daughter, take heart daughter. And I just thought, I, 
it just, it was such a beautiful picture of the way that Jesus is restoring all things to new. Hmm. One of the correctives that I hear you communicating is this, that a lot of ministers and missionaries and whatnot focus so much on uh, trying to remove mental and theological obstacles to understanding their relation with God, people's relation with God. But one of the things that you seem to be highlighting is that a lot of these social dynamics being ostracized, being shamed in the community, uh, those are really big obstacles that get in the way of people's hearts that they're not even going to even think about God all that much because these are so uh, tied in with who they are that they just can't separate some kind of theology in their relation with God with who they are in their community. And so it seems like that you're really trying to bring people back to remember that you can't separate the horizontal and the vertical, so to speak, uh, when you're ministering to people. That's right. And we're seeing it in stark contrast, stark relief right now with um, those those displaced people, um, especially, for example, lately in Afghanistan, we're seeing entire people being forced out they're being driven out and i was just um, reading in ecclesiastes just this week that god seeks those who have been driven out is that not the most beautiful Mm. word and Mm -hmm. so you don't just have a person you don't just have a woman or a man who has been put in a position of shame they've been pushed outside you have an entire people who are being pushed mm-hmm. outside. And this is where it becomes relevant for us, for pastors and teachers and lay people here in the church. We can bring them in and show them a place of belonging. We can yeah. just invite them to be part of our groups. We can be, we can yeah. surround them and encourage them and bring them in. It is, it's depressing. It is it's traumatizing mentally, spiritually, and emotionally for for people from collectivist cultures to suddenly not be part of a collective. Mm. Mm. Yeah. yeah, totally. Well, I know time is uh, running short, but there's one quote that I feel like it's really fitting to, to kind of wrap up with that I don't even have a question other than I just want you to elaborate because I just love it. And I think it's going to be striking for a lot of people. Uh, you were quoting a friend and uh, she said, I always knew I could be forgiven, but I never knew I could be clean. And that's, that's just like a big gong to the heart, to the mind. So whatever, just go, whoa, hold on a minute. What? That's, it seems like everything you've talked about so far, it equips us to understand that quote, but I would just love for you to unpack that a little bit. So just to kind of bring it home, this discussion. Well, that's a really beautiful story. There was a, a teacher I know who had walked. She had taken a two-day walk. She'd spent a night at a village halfway just so she could teach the Bible to a group of Christian women. And those women likewise had walked from villages all around because they heard the Christian teacher was coming. And this was a Muslim tribe. And the after the fire burned down, after the teaching was over, um, this old, old lady walked up to her and she said, thank you. And then she just waited. And then she said, I always knew I could be forgiven, but I never knew I could be clean. 
And I feel that resonates for everyone. Here in the United States, for example, we know we're forgiven. We, Even if we're not a churchgoer, the gospel has been declared on radios, on television. Hearts have been hardened. We don't want to hear it anymore. We don't want to see the billboard that says Jesus loves you. We Mm -hmm. know we could be forgiven. But how many people are carrying around a big, dirty burden, not thinking Mm -hmm. they could ever be anything but a hopeless case? Shameful, a lost cause, mm. a porn addict, a drug addict, a yeah. gambling addict, a, a kid who's yeah. bullied and and a, a fat person, a, a fat middle schooler, uh, this, that, or the other. There's so many examples in our news headlines today of people who are on the outside. They're carrying a huge burden of shame. They don't know what to do with that. So I would love it if we would begin to tell them that Jesus abolished their shame. He doesn't just forget. Yeah. King David knew this. He cried out after mm. he had followed his lustful spirit to Bathsheba. He, he cried out to God. He said, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit. And that verse isn't the first place he asked for clean. He asked for clean in the very beginning of Psalm 51. He repeats it several times. Mm. He's very concerned with how dirty he feels and how dirty his soul is and his heart is. Mm. And he knows he can't remove it. He asked God to create. You need to do something brand new. Don't scrub me up. I just need you to create a new heart in me. Right. Right. Going back to within all of us is the idea of a new identity, you know, and that can only come. Yeah. Can only come in Christ. Yeah. So Audrey, this has just been such a gift to get to talk to you today. Truly. And, uh, you know, this is the Doing Theology Thinking Mission podcast, and I love how you're constantly integrating scripture yeah. and culture together. So uh, as as we go, do you have any uh, recommendations, whether theological or mission-related resources that could, you think would help people to continue this conversation? You might enjoy reading my friend um, Saeed, even Saeed's book. You can get it on Amazon. It is called Try Me, I'm Jesus. And recently I was on a podcast with him and we both discussed the roles of men and women in the honor shame paradigm. He's just a very special, special person. And I'd love for you to get to know him more. Also, I think of when you were asking questions earlier, I was thinking often of Esther Ahmad's book, um, Define Jihad. It it, um, was released by Tyndale in 2019. And she speaks so personally from the perspective of a daughter about her father and about her mother and her mother's um, self-view of her mother's um, sinlessness or her father's view of Esther's role, how she could bring honor to the family. It's a it's a very insightful um, sinlessness or her father's view of Esther's role, how she could bring honor to the family. It's a it's a very insightful read on the positional honor of, of women. Could you say that name again? Great. The name is Defying Jihad by Esther Ahmad. Defying Jihad by Esther Ahmad. And we'll put the links to those um, in the show notes too. So people can, if they're looking for those links, they'll be there. Okay, great. Great. Well, thank you for having me. So nice talking to you every time. Yes. Yes. Thank you for sharing. Thank, Thank you, Audrey. And thank you guys for joining us uh, for this episode of Doing Theology, Thinking Mission. Check out these resources and keep the conversation going.